Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So this is, uh, this is a kind of a, a turning point that we're going to go through this morning in, in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But leading up to this, just as a slight refresher, the first three chapters of this letter that, that Paul's been writing to the church in Corinth has been making correction after correction to the way that the Corinthians were thinking and carrying on. And here in chapter 4, Paul's going to kind of emphatically end his argument once and for all on uh, talking about the differences between being a follower of Jesus versus someone who just talks like they're a follower of Jesus. And since, the, since the Corinthians were way off in their understanding about Apollos and, and Paul, these two apostles, and Cephas, and even, and even under, their understanding about Jesus, Paul is going to emphatically set the record straight to kind of end this portion of 1 Corinthians. This for, these first four chapters were an argument about the apostleship that Paul had and how he is meant to be a spiritual authority in the lives of these people that they had been giving up on. We're going to get to that in this chapter. And then after this, once we get into chapter 5, then Paul's going to start addressing very specific things outside of this argument that were going on in the church. And that, that'll go on for, for several chapters. But it'll, it'll, it's a wonderful topical experience for us to study these things. So I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll start in here uh, reading the first five verses. Father, I know that this book is written a long time ago by a person that we've never known, two people that we've never known. But the, the part about this, I think I, I just want you to speak to me about this morning, is that this was written to a church. And your church is what you've established here on this earth to carry on your ministry, to be your body, to be your hands and your feet here on earth once you ascended to heaven. So Jesus... I know that this letter isn't written to our church, but there still are lessons in this letter for our church. So would you please, Holy Spirit, speak to each and every one of us. I pray that we would understand these things, not just from a historical perspective, but a personal one. I pray that you would cause our passions to be aligned with yours and that the things of the flesh would fall away. Every week, Jesus, we battle the flesh it says in, in Galatians 5 that we're never free to serve the Spirit because the flesh is always causing our decisions to experience conflict. So Jesus, we don't want to be in conflict. We don't want to be in conflict with you. We don't want the flesh to win. We don't want the flesh to battle and take back territory that belongs to you. So we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us Empower us like you say that you will. Remind us, teach us, give us the strength and the desire to do your will and to continue in that path. Amen. All right, well, let's start here with the, the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 4. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. The us there is Apollos and Paul, the apostles, right? Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. 
It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So in the the beginning of this chapter here, we see that Paul understands the responsibility that he and other teachers like Apollos and Cephas have been given by God. They're apostles. They have been sent by God to an area with a message that God intended for those people to hear. So these guys are messengers of the good news. They've been entrusted with a mission, and now they are working hard to fulfill this mission through their lives. But think about this for a moment, okay? If we, if we look back to chapter 1, we see that the, one of Paul's first statements is he says, Some of you say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So when people are saying these things, they're choosing between all of God's servants that have been sent to them to teach them something. And if the Corinthians say that I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or Cephas, wouldn't that mean that by choosing one, they may be rejecting the others? I'd never thought about that until this week. I read uh, someone's comments on on this chapter and I'm like, man, I never thought about that. That is it possible for us to reject a servant of God that he put in our lives for our benefit? Is it possible for us to reject that person? It seems like it. Some of the Corinthians who Paul had ministered to for a year and a half, who he had led to the Lord and taught and helped to form the church with these people, they had actually now become anti-Paul. They were against Paul and opposed to his ministry that God gave him. But Paul reminds them that because he's a servant of God, they can't judge him uh, or because he is under Christ's authority. In fact, Paul can't even judge his own work or his own ministry for God, even if he feels that he's done a great job. Paul reminds everyone, it's like, no, Christ's servants are judged by Christ only, period. We learned about this judgment in greater detail last week when we talked about what's going to come. And we talked about the symbolism of the fire and the gold, silver, wood, hay, stubble, all that stuff, right? We talked about the symbolism of good works built on the foundation of faith versus bad works. And who's the judge in that scenario? It's Christ, right? Christ is the one who judges us according to how we are serving him. He knows the motives of our heart. You know, there's a subtle lesson here that I found in, in the first five verses Of this chapter, and it's about worry. I think Paul could have very easily worried or become preoccupied with what other people, these Corinthians, thought about him. But he didn't. That wasn't the thing that that overwhelmed him or or took over his, his thought process. He remained focused on knowing that one day only the Lord would be able to judge him for his ministry to the Corinthians that God himself gave him. And I think that's a wonderful thing for us to think about too. If we worry too much about what other people think about how we're serving Jesus, our eyes are going to be taken off of him and our ministry and the calling that God has placed in all of our lives is going to suffer. I think it's going to struggle. So that's why in in verse 5 when it says judge nothing, that's referring to only Jesus can judge us for our Christian service. So that's the specific part of this. Now the reason I'm, I'm, I'm being specific about Christian ministry here is because that's the context that we're reading this in. Some people read judge nothing and they say I am never supposed to judge anyone at any time for any reason. That's actually not true. 
Because in the next two chapters, in the next two weeks, we're going to see two instances where Paul actually tells the church, you ought to be judging one another based on this criteria in these scenarios. So we can't just say this is a sweeping, all-encompassing statement, never judge anyone for anything. Oh no, as Christians, there is absolutely a time for us to offer judgment. Not condemnation, but judgment. So let's continue on here. Verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over and against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did, not, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So Paul has been teaching the Corinthians about where disunity in the church comes from. And the big thing is boasting in ourselves rather than boasting in Christ. Another word for that would be pride. Pride makes us stray away from what is written. That's what it said in verse 6. Do not go beyond what is written. And that's a reference to the Bible or to God's teachings. When we go beyond what is written, when we add to it or when we don't take that into consideration in how we live our lives, then we're living our lives based on our own thoughts, opinions, preferences, etc. And that is a prideful way to live because we're looking to ourself rather than looking to Christ in those decisions. So Paul questions the Corinthians' egos here. Basically, he's saying, who do you think you are? None of what you have as, as Christians is from yourself. You didn't come up with these things on your own. It's from God or it's from God who sent someone into your life to bring these things to you. You have no reason to boast about how brilliant you think you are as a Christian. Being a Christian is a humbling experience, right? Because the more we learn about Jesus, the more we realize how miserable we are without him. You know, I, I study the Bible every day for a living, and I think I'm so blessed, and I wish that everyone in their life could, could feel the pressure of coming up with a message in, in six days or whatever it is that you spend, because when you study the Bible, you learn ten times more than you could ever relay in a message. And the more I learn, the more I learn that I need to keep learning because I haven't learned that much, okay? Like, there's, it's this endless and beautiful cycle of following Jesus and being reminded, oh yeah, I'm frail. Oh yeah, that's right. I have nothing that I can offer. But Christ is all in all for me. And that's what the Corinthians were missing out on here. In their pride, they thought that they had arrived and that their Christian intellect was sufficient for them. Remember at the beginning of chapter 3 last week, Paul called the Corinthians spiritual infants. Have you ever heard a saying that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing? The phrase means that knowing just a little information about something is enough to make us think that we're experts when we still actually have so much to learn. About a year after I was out of high school, I was working in a paint store in Winkler, and another guy that I graduated high school with was also working there. His name was Dave. David, whatever. You can call him whatever you want. You don't know him. <laughs> David, we'll just say David. So David and I were working at this paint store and we would chat all the time about things going on in our life. And he had this old Nissan car and, and he said that it was having some engine troubles. So he was going to take a crack at fixing this thing himself. And I said, David, have you ever worked on cars before? Well, no, but I'm a, you know, I'm a generally handy guy. I know how to use tools and things like that. So I'm sure I can figure it out. I mean, what's so hard about engines, right, Roger? So, <laughs> so David proceeds to get out the owner's manual and just disassemble his engine 
because he was looking for something that didn't look right. I don't know what he was looking for, but he was very confident that he would know it when he found it. After a couple of days and realizing that he was way over his head and admitting that he did not have what it takes to fix the engine, he started to reassemble it. And when he was done reassembling his engine, there were several parts left over. And he came to me the next day at work and he says, Jeff, I don't think this is going to work out after all. See, this little bit of confidence that David had where he thought, well, I'm handy. I know what tools are. I know how to use things. He, he used that confidence and it took him beyond where he should go. He started to have confidence too much in himself and it actually betrayed him. And the mess became a lot bigger than maybe what a simple fix might have been for someone who was trained and knew what they were doing. So this is exactly what's happened, I think, in the lives of these Corinthians. They're young in their faith and they feel like they are much wiser than Paul now. They've already surpassed him. In their foolish pride, they feel like they don't need Paul anymore and they have this Jesus thing all figured out. So Paul continues to address this pride issue when he goes to uh, verse 8 to 13. So here's, here's kind of the way I'm reading this and, and you hear me out here. Paul says, Already you have all you want, already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish you had really begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honored and we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of this world, right up to this moment. So anytime that Paul says we, he's referring to himself and other teachers like Apostle or Apollos and Cephas. So he's saying, guys, we, our experience is that through following Christ, we have been slandered and mistreated and cursed. And life is hard. It's very difficult. But our focus is on Christ. But for you, Corinthians, oh, you have arrived. In your three years of knowing Jesus, you have it all figured out. And look at you. You have found a high position. Oh, for us apostles, if we could only be like you. It's, it's kind of a sarcastic, rhetorical way of talking. But I think it proves the point in an excellent way. In, in these verses, Paul is contrasting the immature, prideful Christians with himself and the other apostles. And I think, I think we, get this, we get the point here. Had these Corinthians in their three years, roughly three years of following Jesus, had they mastered the Christian life? Had they figured out the secret to living for the Lord? Had they arrived and now no, no longer needed anyone else to hold them accountable or to teach them or to walk with them or disciple them? Of course not. But in their minds, they had had this Christian life mastered. You know, I remember a young man who was a part of my previous church. I, I love this guy a lot. But, you know, he had come to know Jesus through the ministry in our church. He, he struggled in his faith and, and, and was taking strides and was immature at times, but growing in others. And, and you know, even in this in the struggle of him understanding his faith, you could see that he genuinely loved the Lord and wanted to understand what it meant to serve him and follow him. 
But one day, recent, or soon after his, his high school graduation, he came to me and he said that he was leaving our church but he, because he had outgrown this church and it no longer had anything to offer him. You know, I was pretty shocked to hear that. And I wondered, like, what, what's gone on in this young man's mind that in just four years of following Jesus, he felt that a church no longer had anything to offer him and he had arrived? Like, that's, that's such a sad place to be. Could it be that out of pride, this young man thought he had all things figured out? Anyone knew, who knew him personally and spent time with him knew that he was a great kid, but still had a lot to learn. Part of what Paul seems to be doing to me in, in verses 8 to 13 that we read is comparing what these young believers think life is all about as Christians to what Paul and others have experienced as Jesus' faithful servants over a much longer period of time. Faithfully serving Jesus like Paul and his companions were doing, like we said, it led to a, a hard life. It's not a life where you, you get to enjoy all the prestige of life here on earth. There's a lot of difficulties that come when we authentically give our heart to the Lord. There's a cost to following Jesus. He talks about that often in the Gospels. But because of their devotion, they're even regarded as the scum of the earth. The, the Corinthians, however... In the three years that they had been following the Lord, they had assumed a very high position of themselves. And that's just the exact opposite to what Paul and his companions, the ones who were the leaders, they were the setting the tone for faith. That's the exact opposite of what they had experienced. And I think Paul's just trying to say, guys, open your eyes. You need to understand that life beyond your little bubble is what reality is all about. Following Jesus is not just assuming a high position and saying all these great things. There's a cost to it, and you have to wrap your head around that. So, so why is Paul being so emphatic about this point? Why does he want to make sure that they understand this contrast? It's not intellectual. It's not just based on our own understanding and us self-exalting. Why does he want them to understand that? I think verse 14 to 17 has our answer. Paul, here's the reason. Paul says, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So two interesting words here. Paul calls the Corinthians, he says, my children. And then he also says, I'm sending you Timothy, my son. Now, are the Corinthians or Timothy Paul's biological children? No. But in a spiritual sense, they absolutely are. Paul's offering a warning here. Simply put, the, the church in Corinth was way off base, and they were straying away from the heart that is honoring to Christ. And instead, in their pride, they were choosing a heart that was all about themselves. And in an act of incredible humility and faithfulness to God's call in his life, Paul is holding fast to his responsibility for the well-being of these believers, even though many of them have turned against them. Paul is their spiritual father. He led them to Christ, and he isn't about to abandon them uh, or abandon his responsibility to them right now. So that's why Paul uses the language that he does. My children, my son, I'm taking responsibility 
I'm not just going to lead you to Christ and then abandon you and leave you to twist in the wind. Oh, no, I'm going to see this thing through. Because whether you like it or not, and sometimes we have to talk to our kids that way, don't we? Whether you like it or not, I'm in for the long haul. And I'm committed to seeing this through so that you will know Christ in the way that I do. Therefore, imitate me. Look at my life. And maybe there's something else that you can learn. Verse 16 is awesome where Paul says, imitate me. I wonder if some people read this and they say, well, Paul, that's incredibly arrogant. How can you tell someone else to follow you? Shouldn't we only be telling people to follow Jesus? Well, when, when we hear Paul say, imitate me, it's not an arrogant statement at all. Paul is, once again, taking his responsibility as a teacher, an apostle, a spiritual leader, and an example, a role model for these people to follow. It's like he's saying, guys, I'm running as hard as I can for Jesus, and I've given up everything else that this world could possibly offer. That's what's made sense to me. That's what continues to fuel my life day by day by day. Would you follow me? Would you do the same thing that I'm doing? Imitate me. This is, this is what's made sense to me, and I can see the Lord working in it. Won't you do, try the same thing? We both need the Lord to work in our lives. I'm very thankful personally for the people that God has put in my life as Christ-honoring examples for me to imitate. None of them ever said, Jeff, imitate me, but through just observing them, spending time with them, I've seen God in them, and it's made me want to say, man, I need to be with these people. My parents love Jesus, and I was so glad to follow their faithful example growing up. We prayed together as a family. My dad opened his Bible, and he read it out in front of everyone so that we could see him reading the Bible and spending time with the Lord. We went to church every Sunday. If it was a nice day and we'd rather be out hiking in the Pemina Hills, we didn't say, let's skip church. We said, no, there's lots of time after church, but God is important. And my dad and my mom, they set that example. I'm so glad for that. I'm glad that they never relented, but they were faithful in that. I think about my youth pastor, Brad, my youth sponsor who became my friend and then eventually the best man at my wedding, uh, Kevin. And I think about a really good friend who you guys have met because he was here a couple of years ago, Donovan Friesen, who is my friend and my mentor. All of these people, I believe that they understood that I was watching them. And they took their responsibility to be an example of Christ in my life seriously. If they would have let off the gas or just said, ah, whatever, Jeff can look to someone else. I would have been watching them and then I would have followed a bad example. But they knew that there was someone watching and they pressed on before, not just for their own sake, but for mine. And I'm so eternally thankful for that. So let me ask you a question. Who has God put in your life for you to follow as an example I guarantee that God has given you at least one person, at least one person, likely far more, as far as people go who are living a life for Christ. They serve him. They love him. They're running in their life towards him. They've given up the things of this world that could easily distract them. And they're saying, no, all I want is to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to serve Jesus, because my life is living for heaven, not for the here and now. Every one of us has someone like that and likely many more. When you can identify who that person is, seek them out. Don't wait. You know what? The opportunity is there. If you see someone who loves Jesus, go up to them and say, I want to spend time with you. 
And don't think that it's weird or awkward. It's actually the most spiritually mature thing we could do in our lives. When you find someone who loves Jesus, say, I want to spend time with you because I admire the way that you follow Christ. And I want to learn to do the same thing. Don't just try to be cool about it and just kind of watch them from afar, but actually get into their life. Ask them questions. Tell them that you want to learn more about these things. Ask them, how do you read your Bible? Because when I read it, it's confusing, or I'm not getting anything out of it, or I'm stuck, or I'm in a, I'm in a dark place, and it's just not making sense to me. What do you pray about? Because I need to pray about different things in my life. I'm at a standstill right now. What do you do to serve the Lord? Because I hear people say we're supposed to do this all the time. I don't even know what that means. And ask them what to do. Friends, we are the ones who are responsible for our faith and our maturity in Christ. I, I mean, I, I get it. I'm a pastor and, and God has called my family here to Kandu and we love it. And I love pouring into people. But I can't make everyone do the things that God is calling us to do. We all need to step forward and say, Jesus, I see you running after me. And now I'm going to turn and I'm going re- to respond to you. I'm going to let go of the things of the world in order to have more of you. I think it's just so important. I I, I don't think this is something that we can underemphasize. There's got to be a move that we make. And I think God has put the people in our lives that we can spend time with. And he's going to help us to grow and learn and give up the ways of the world to be people who follow him. Verse 18. Some of you have become arrogant as if we were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. So also as their spiritual father, Paul knows that he may have to examine their behavior as his spiritual children. He might have to kind of do a bit of an attitude adjustment, right? We all, I remember my, (laughs) my parents would say to us once in a while, especially if my brother and sister and I were in each other's hair and they say, guys, Time for a little AA. And that wasn't Alcoholics Anonymous. That was an attitude adjustment. We knew exactly what they meant. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. So as their spiritual father, Paul knows that he has to examine them and he has to bring some correction and and see if they're they're arrogantly boasting. He's going to say, guys, you're up to no good. There needs to be a change. So why why is Paul so concerned about arrogant talk anyway? Like we've... We've seen this, this theme come up time and time again for the, through the first four chapters now. Why, why is it that arrogant talk is the one thing that Paul is emphasizing here? Verse 20 has, has the answer. And it starts with the word for, F-O-R, for. But for could also mean because, okay? So if we read this, it says, I will come to you very soon if the Lord is winning, willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. I will find out because the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Oh, so if people have built their lives and their faith and their understanding about Jesus, just on talk, just on ideas, just on Christian intellect, they actually have not pursued Jesus at all. Have they? What a scary thought that is that we have people in the churches in Western culture where we have freedom of religion and we've studied the Bible and we've studied the Bible and we've studied the Bible and we talk about it all the time. But some people actually just know facts about Jesus. They don't know Jesus. 
And because of that, there's no power. There is none. So this statement summarizes the whole point of the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. Everything Paul has written so far is coming to a head right here in verse 20. The kingdom of God is a matter of power, not a matter of words. In their foolish pride, the Corinthians were a lot of talk. They were a, they were a bunch of windbags, to be honest. They talked and talked and talked about everything that they knew, but they did not submit to the Lord. And because of that, there was no power. The kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the presence of Jesus in our lives is so much more than just words. Wherever the gospel is spoken, it's, it's not just a message, but it is a powerful display of the Holy Spirit. The truth about Jesus doesn't just tickle our intellectual ears, but it actually changes us from the inside out. How many of you can say that when you heard the message of Jesus and you trusted in him over the years as time went on, you experienced a change in your heart beyond the intellectual state of your mind? Yeah, we've experienced a change, haven't we? That's not because someone just kept speaking these words to you because the power comes when the Holy Spirit enters your life. Remember, we needed the revealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 told us about that. Hearing about Jesus and accepting him revitalizes the spiritually dead. It delivers people from their sins and Satan's grasp on their lives. Hearing about Jesus renews them inwardly and and eventually reveals that change outwardly. The gospel is powerful to convict, comfort, strengthen, and sanctify. None of these things happen by mere words, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the kingdom of God. So Paul's asking, is your life just a bunch of hot air? Or is it actually God's power in you? You know, I I think about this question. I mean, Paul's saying it's not a matter of, of talk. It's a matter of power. Like, how many of us even desire this power? I, I just wonder these kinds of things. If we desired it, would we not pray for it every day? Would we not set aside lesser insignificant things to say, Jesus, I'm willing to sacrifice anything so I can just get a a deeper taste of you because I'm not satisfied with this arm's length relationship where I just say, am I saved? Am I saved? Am I saved? Okay, good enough. Then I'm going to go do my own thing. I think this world needs people who are operating in the power of Christ. What do you guys think? So what does that look like? Like, how do we do this? We're going we're gonna to hear a story in a little bit, in a minute here that I think is going to give us a clue. But let me finish up with what Paul's saying here. One more verse in 1 Corinthians 4. Paul asks these guys a question. He says, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? It's like he's saying to the Corinthians, okay, guys, I mean, here's the truth. The ball's in your court. What do you want to do? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So he's asking them, all right, guys, you you have everything you need to know about how useless just boasting about self is and how much power there is in actually denying self and going for Christ. So what do you want to do? How do you want this next visit to go? Paul says, I'm ready to bring correction. Heads up. But I'm also ready to come in gentleness and love. It's up to you. You know, when thinking about the idea of the kingdom of God, I'm so glad that it's 
that we're not called into a kingdom of people who are just windbags and full of hot air. That just sounds so crappy, to be honest. I don't know, I don't know about you, but I'm, I don't get excited about people who talk a lot. I don't get excited about that because there's just too many people who just talk and talk and talk. And they like to hear the sound of their own voice. They like people to be impressed with what they're saying. But you know what? The people who I admire, the people who I've found myself drawn to in life are the people who talk a little, but they live big. And like you can tell that there's something different about them. I remember meeting someone at a, a thrift store once. And we, we literally talked for 30 seconds. And uh, I had made a comment about a board game that he was buying. And I said, oh, sweet board game, man. Um, you're lucky you found that one before me because, man, I would have scooped that up for sure. Just kind of giving him a hard time. And then when I go out to my car, he walks up to me and says, here, I want you to have this. I mean, it was a, a $3 game at a, at a thrift store. And I says, oh, no, I was, just, I was just busting your chops, man. It's all good. And he gives it to me and says, no, really, I want you to have this. And he, and he walks to his car. So I set it down in my car and I walk over to him. So I say, so tell me about your church. And he says, well, how do you know I went to church? I said, well, come on, it's obvious. Your heart is for the Lord. You, you're so sensitive to the way that, you know, the Spirit is leading you. You wanted to give that, that, that game to me because the Lord put it on your heart to do it, right? And he says, yeah. And it's like you can see people. You can see it in them, right? It just oozes out of them. When people love Jesus, they don't need to say it because they're living it out loud. That's the kind of people that I just love to watch because I want to learn from them. And we all need to learn from folks like that. You know, one person like this that my family and I read about recently before bed the other night. My kids have these books. It's kind of, there's 50 stories in each of these books. One for girls, one for boys about people who have lived their lives boldly for Christ. And in, in Easton's book, we read a story uh, about one of those people. So I want to tell you a little bit about this man's story if I can. In 1902... Eric Liddell, or Little, was born in China to Scottish missionaries. However, Eric and his older brother Rob spent much of their childhood away from their parents back in Scotland at a boarding school. Eric grew up loving the Lord. He excelled in math and science and was a gifted athlete. In 1920, he entered the University of Edinburgh, where he was a star runner and rugby player. Eventually, Eric chose running over rugby, and in 1924, he represented Great Britain at the Paris Olympics. His race was the 100-meter sprint. But when Eric found out that the race was on Sunday, the Lord's Day, he refused to run in it. This decision angered the Olympic Committee greatly. So Eric offered to run the 400-meter race instead, which was on Monday. Few people expected him to win, as many people believe that the 400 meter is the most difficult distance to race in all of track and field. Eric thrilled the crowds, however, winning the gold medal and setting a new world record. This stunning victory is portrayed in the film Chariots of Fire. Although he could have had a promising career in athletics, just a year after the Olympics in 1925, Eric went to China, where his parents were missionaries, so that he too could serve the Lord as a missionary in China. There he met his wife Florence, a Canadian missionary. <laughs> Together they had three daughters. In 1937, though, Japan declared war on China. 
Eric moved his wife and children to Canada, but immediately returned to China to join his brother Rob to continue their work spreading the gospel for Jesus Christ now in this area that was being ravaged by war. Their work as missionaries led them across Japanese battle lines. By 1941, the British government advised all British citizens to leave China, but Eric stayed because he was committed to where God had asked him to be. In 1943, his mission station uh, was taken over by the Japanese, and Eric, amongst others, were placed in a Japanese prison camp. Eric was a natural leader amongst the prisoners at this camp. He joyfully... He joyfully ministered to his fellow prisoners, helping the elderly, teaching Bible classes, arranging games for children, and teaching science to the school-aged children as well. The entire time that he was in this prison camp, he wrote letters to his wife and family back in Canada. When a prisoner exchange was arranged between the British and the Japanese government, Eric was selected as the prisoner that the British government wanted to liberate from this camp. But Eric allowed a pregnant woman to take his place. In his final letter to his wife, Eric Little wrote about suffering from being overworked. He had been malnourished for a long time, and a tumor had developed in his brain. On the same day he wrote this last letter to his wife, Eric Little died. Just five months before Allied forces liberated the prison camp. To me, there's just nothing about Eric Little that we would say is hot air or just talk. But clearly, the kingdom of God was powerfully at work in and through his life. For the Corinthians and for us, pride is the enemy of living in God's power. So how do we defeat pride? How do we make sure that pride is not mounting up in our lives and subtly stealing us away from living for Christ? I think there's three keys to defeating pride that we see in Paul's life and we can see in Eric Little's life as well. The first key is to surrender. Look at Paul. I mean, this guy was a Pharisee. He was well-respected amongst his peers. He was a high-ranking official in Jerusalem. He had what the Jewish people would have called kind of a dream life. And he gave it up. He submitted it to the Lord so that he could do, or he surrendered it to the Lord so that he could do what God was asking him to do and be a, uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. Same thing with Eric Little. I mean, this guy just came off setting a world record and Olympic gold medal, even if he would have ran until he was 30. His fame and and fortune, even in those days, would have been significant. But he gave it up because he knew that God was calling him to surrender that life for a life that was so much better. The second thing is service. Their lives were were not about themselves, right? They were committed to the will of God. 
And, and, and the way that they served was great as well. They didn't tell people how much they knew, but they showed people how much they loved. That's what I think service is supposed to be. We show people love. We, we love them. We serve them. We, we give to them in generosity. And then as we've served them, Christ is just emitting from our lives. And then we have a moment where we can have authority and a, and, a, and, a, and a trust to speak truth into the lives of someone. And the third thing that I see both in Paul and in Eric Little is sacrifice. Both of them were willing to eliminate anything, anything that stood between them and Jesus. I love that. And that's what I want to do for my life. That's what I want to do for us as a church. Surrender, service, and sacrifice. Those are just three quick things that I saw. And I think we have great inspiration. Um, when, we, when we read stories about people like Eric Little, we, we ought to see ourselves in those stories. It's like, Lord, what are you calling me to? How am I supposed to surrender? How, what does service to you look like right now? It doesn't have to be me moving to another continent, but I just want to be faithful where you've put me. Because I don't, my life isn't about myself. That's pride. My life is about you. That's service, right? Service to the king. And, you know, we see the ultimate example of surrender, service, and sacrifice in our Lord Jesus. Today's Communion Sunday. And I think one of the, one of the reasons I love to take communion together is because we recognize the character of Christ we, all people in scripture are always pointing to Jesus. Paul's not saying be like me because he's got it figured out. He says be like me because I'm hungering and thirsting for Jesus. Because he's the ultimate example. And then we see, we see the life of Christ. We see exactly that he lived in the same way. He surrendered to the will of God the Father. It was the Father who sent Jesus to this earth. It was the Father who said, Jesus, I have a mission for you to fulfill. And Jesus willingly did it. He surrendered to the will of God. He, it, it says in, in Philippians that he did not hold on to the rights and privileges of heaven, but he gave them up to become a humble servant, to humble himself to become a person, and then humble himself even to die on a cross. So when we, when we look at the servant piece, there, there we can see service. We see that Christ obviously is, is a one who serves the will of God, not for his own benefit, but for ours, Right? He was not about himself. He was about how many people can I bring the good news to? How many people can I die for? And it was everybody. Christ died for everyone as a service to them and to God. And it was a cost to himself. And that's where the sacrifice comes in. Christ did not let anything stand in the way of him fulfilling the mission that God had for his life. Does pride have a role in any one of these things? It can't. Pride is the exact opposite of everything that we're called to be in God. And that's why Paul emphasized that so much today. And that's why we turn to Jesus. Jesus, help us to be humble. Help us to turn to you. Help us to seek your face. Help us to deny ourselves, to carry our cross and to follow you daily, knowing that there's a cost involved, Jesus. You willingly took up your cross. You allowed your body to be broken because our sins needed to be forgiven. 